0: Three questions for you. Jesus was a masterful user of questions. And this chapter here before us is one of the great chapters of nine questions. It's a wonderful mini series to do to look at the nine questions that are given in this chapter uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyhow, we're not going to look at all nine today but i'll look at some and i will articulate some others that we should force ourselves to think as questions questions are powerful jesus used them in conversation conversation he is using the questions here to disciple and to train the church leaders questions challenge you to think about something seriously and to give your mind and your heart to its attention And so we can learn from Jesus. Questions are important, and Jesus is master of never letting them sort of just be dead ended. So today we want to look at the first question, which is an eternal question here in verses 13 and verse 15. It's the very heart of Christianity. But I'm going to form three questions together then as we proceed to look at this text today under the theme, Three Questions for You. And these questions here are given uh, in the form of didactic teaching, but also questions as Jesus is discipling the disciples in the Golan Heights. We've all heard of the Golan Heights in North Israel Well, this is the northern portion of Jesus' ministry in Caesarea Philippi. And they're in the northern region of what is today the Golan Heights, the border between Israel and Syria. And it is one of the most northern places that Jesus went to do ministry in the interior. The Mount great Mount Hermon is just in the distance. So you can see the scene. There is the mountain with the snow on top. The water is coming down. And there they are in the great Golan Heights being discipled privately. And the way the discipleship begins is by a pressing, penetrating question to their souls. Who do you say Christ Jesus is? And then we'll look at two others that I want to formulate with you today. Who do you say Christ is? What do you say the church is? And what do you say about the keys of the kingdom? So we'll look at those three questions then today. The first question is given twice. It's given as a general question in verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So what is the the popular opinion? It's like the Gallup poll. What is the Gallup poll saying? What is the society saying? And, of course, it is a question about identity. Well, if there's anything we know about today, it's identity. That's the name of society today. That's the, the key of our culture, to get your identity right, whatever it is, it seems, these days. It's a question, then, of the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very focused question. It's a very good question. It's a wonderful question. And of course, the disciples say, well, there are four popular answers that we've heard already. Some think that John the Baptist has come back to life again. a Sort of a type of, of reincarnation, perhaps, but probably a a reliving again and a a coming back to earth. Some say it's Elijah who's come back again. Some say it's Jeremiah, the great prophet. And others say it's another prophet who they're not sure about, they don't name. So what the popular idea is, he is someone who had died but has come back to life and he used to be one of the great leaders of the church, whether it be John or whether it be Elijah or Jeremiah or someone else. Popular options about the identity of Jesus but they're all wrong. And that tells us something right there. You can be wrong in your answer of who Jesus is. And that means there has to be a truthful answer, there must be a correct answer. And so Jesus presses them again. And he goes from the general to the generic to the audience of the world, and he says, But who do you say that I am? So it's personal, it's particular. And of course, we all know the story. Peter is the impetuous one. He stands up and he speaks for everyone. There's always one in a crowd, right? You've been to Bible studies, you know how they operate. You've seen meetings and there's always one that becomes a key spokesperson and they address people. Well, Peter is that person. He's impetuous Peter, and he comes forward, and he speaks with personality, with personal reflection, because he's had three years of training, three years of being with Jesus, seeing him, hearing him, experiencing the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and he gives his answer very clearly and dogmatically. This is the identity of Jesus. It is two things. Number one, he is anointed as the Messiah. Number two, he is not just a man. He is the God-man. And when he says he's the Messiah, what he means is he is the one anointed to be a real prophet of God, to be a real priest of God, to be the real king of the Lord and of his kingdom that will come. He is the promised Messiah. So he gets it right. But many people don't get it right. You remember, and I hope you're acquainted with it. Back in the late 40s and early 50s, C.S. Lewis was writing and, and he was broadcasting on BBC during the war and after the war. And he wrote that very famous work called Mere Christianity. And in it, there is that very famous page, and it's known as the Trilemion, try for three. And he states there are three options for you to say about Jesus Christ. You can call Jesus the liar, you can call Jesus the lunatic, or you can call Jesus the Lord. And your Lord. It's a very famous statement. Now, C.S. Lewis didn't invent it. Like all people, we're borrowers. Not plagiarists, but borrowers. And C.S. Lewis was a well-read man, and somehow he had come across it in earlier writings, going back to a Scot by the name of John Rabbi Duncan, nicknamed Rabbi. And he had spoken of the same thing, the trilemma, of the Trelemian, and he had said the same word. And if this one Jesus were not the Lord, then he's a liar. Don't listen to him. Or he's crazy, he's a lunatic. But what he says about you, and about this world, and its need, is truthful. He is not a liar. And he is sane. He is the sanest person who has ever lived. He is not a lunatic. Therefore, he is the Lord. Go back and read it sometime. In most editions, you'll find it right around page 46 to 52. It's the heart of Lewis. It's the egg story, if you can remember that, the poached egg, so you can go and think about that. Use it for your evangelism. Do not allow people away with it. He is not the liar. He is not the lunatic. He is not just some kind of fanciful teacher. He is the anointed of God. He is the Lord. And so Peter enters into that great confession. And he makes it plain. You are the Christ. The Messiah. The anointed. The one who will teach you. And guide you. Direct you. The one who will be the priest. Of the great order of Melchizedek. The one who will be the king of kings and shall reign forever and ascend to the glory of the Father. He is divine. He is not just a human. He is the Lord God man. And he has been anointed to save the sins of his people. To teach them the way of life and salvation. To rule them and to bring their knees to him and to bow before him and to submit to his reign. He is my Lord, my Savior, my anointed one, the anointed one. And until you say that, you will not have peace with God. Your life will be meaningless existentially. It will be a life of confusion, a life of angst. Maybe you remember the story... If I could go back to the 50s again, it was the 1950s and on BBC, world broadcasts and television and radio, they were doing a series of talks by an agnostic and atheist. His name was Bertrand Russell. And Bertrand Russell was very popular. Everyone was watching him on the telly in the evening when they went home and he was destroying Christianity, debunking Jesus, tearing apart Jesus in the Bible But he had no answers. One day Bertrand Russell was running through the street of London and he hailed one of those great British black cabs and he he hailed the taxi down and the taxi driver recognized him from the television and said to him, Hey Bert! Imagine calling Bertrand Russell Bert. Hey Bert! What's it all about? What's it all about? And Bertrand Russell had no answer. There is no answer outside of the Anointed, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no peace with God until you know Him and live in Him. Many people have sat under gospel preaching for years and yet there is no confession of faith. They never come to a settled conviction without hesitation that this is the anointed of God. This is the son of the living God. And friends, if you are not settled today, please, I exhort you, speak and discuss it with an elder and a pastor. And pray that the work of the Holy Spirit will bring you to conviction, to a settled understanding, and there will be no hesitation. And you will profess publicly this is the Lord Jesus Christ, who I believe and I know. Peter did not come to that without the Spirit of God blessing him. And as it says there in the very next verse, Blessed are you, Simon Barjuna. for it's been revealed to you. Your heart has been opened. The darkness has been taken away. You have seen who Christ is. You have come to see who he is in his identity you have come to know that this is the way with peace with God. It is through him. It is the work of God's grace by the Holy Spirit. And may we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to bring men and women and youth and young people, all people, to conviction. And I will tell you that Peter was not saying it as an academic this was not some notional idea, some theoretical concept. He was feeling it in the very depth of his, of his heart. I love that when D. Douglas Bennerman says it that way. Peter was feeling it in the very bottom of his heart. It was known. It was experienced. It was living. It was not dry academic orthodoxy. It was the experience of in the delight of his soul, to say, I know, I love, and I revere. And if you say, well, I know I'm not strong enough to make that confession and to persevere, then you need to take great hope from Matthew 16, Because how many verses is it between the confession of verse 16 and the rebuke of Jesus in verse number 23 where Jesus says, now you're hindering the kingdom, Peter, and get behind me, Satan. Isn't it amazing? You can make that great confession of faith. And some people have said, well, I'm not strong enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough yet because I could fall. And so they never come forward. You're never sure upon their dying where they stood with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not sure what to say when you go and conduct their funeral because there is nothing that they have said. And then sometimes they will say to you, ah, but I, I, I could fall. I could hinder the kingdom. My friends, the Lord Jesus Christ had to rebuke the Apostle Peter just a short time after his wonderful biblical confession of faith. Such is the human condition, even after conversion, confession, proclamation. Friend, do you know who Jesus Christ is? Are you settled? What have you confessed about him? And is it settled in your heart today? Now, the second question that I would pose, because it's all related, and that goes on to the 18th verse. What do you say about the church? What do you say about the church? This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that the word church is used. It's only used twice in the Gospel of Matthew. That should remind you of something. We should be sparing in how we think of these things sometimes. What is this thing called church? Let's state it positively first. The church is an assembly of people that have been called out of the world and have made known their confession of faith in Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful summation in J.C. Ryle. He says it like this. The church which Jesus promises to build upon a rock is the blessed company of all faithful people. It is not the visible church of any one nation or country or place. It is the whole body of believers of every age and tongue and people. It is the church composed of all who are washed in Christ's blood, clothed in Christ's righteousness, renewed in his spirit, joined to Jesus by faith and living epistle. What is the church? Do not leave here without a settled conviction. Do not leave here with any confusion. The church primarily and first here in this text is this. It is a called out people who have come to confess their faith in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is. And they stand together as a common bond As the people of confessing faith. You will notice then, it is not first a building. Nor is it even referring first to the visible local churches. Primarily and first, it is those in any day and generation and period of time who have the same confession of faith that the Apostle Peter has just spoken of as a spokesperson for all the apostolic brethren and disciples. It is a common faith upon the common stone of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a building. That's just a meeting place. It's a people who are called out of unbelief and paganism to a common faith. The core gospel, the core faith, the mere Christianity of Jesus Christ, the anointed, the Son of God, Savior, my Lord. What is the church? The church is not first denomination. The church is not first building. The church is not first to be seen just visibly. The church is first to be understood as the confessing people universally of the same faith and of that core faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's being built. Secondly, What is this church? It's not completed yet. It's still being built. It's being built in this world, across the nations, in this universal world. It's growing, it's going, it's gathering, it's discipling, it's nurturing. And look at the illustration of the Apostle Peter. Let me give you two illustrations to prove the point. What was the Peter and the apostles involved with? Go to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Read the end of the sermon of Acts chapter 2. And what do you read? You see the great core of the doctrines of the faith being given forth there. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And these were added to the church. You see, the church is that body of believers who confess the faith of the one who is the rock of our salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's being built, it was being built there on the day of Pentecost. As the great diaspora tribes of black and white and colored Jewish people were gathered in Jerusalem. Confessing their faith in the Lord from across North Africa, Europe and the Middle East. Turn over to Acts chapter 10 and what do you see in Acts chapter 10? There you see Peter with Gentiles in the household of Cornelius. And what do you see Peter doing? You see Peter building the church, bringing in the Gentiles from the tribes of the pagan nations. The church is being built. It is being gathered. It is being discipled. It is being nurtured. It is being called together. The Lord is building His church and He uses humans to do it. He uses them as human advancing Army officers, and the church is being built. The church always has the heartbeat of evangelism. Its mandate is to go, its mandate is to gather, it is to call, Are you in Christ? to the nations of the world. What is the church? The confessing body of those who believe in the rock of their salvation. It is being built up. And Peter is granted, as all Christians, there is a promise to the church. And this promise to the church is what we need to hear today. And what is this promise to the church? The promise is this. The gates of death and darkness are going to come upon the church. But we do not need to fear. Darkness is upon the land of the West. The church of the West is collapsing. The highest rate of church closures in history is taking place across this country. Open your eyes to see it. Darkness is upon the West. Look at the East. Look at Asia. Darkness is upon the church and persecution in so many lands and places. And you would say to yourself, "Ah, oh, it's over. The church is done. It's, 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 it's finished. It's, it's done. And here, notice what it says. The promise is to the confessing church. That it will be built, it will be gathered, it will strengthen, and it will go on from generation to generation. As it faces death and Hades, it will go on. You will notice this is not a promise to a denomination. This is not a promise to a local assembly. This is a promise to the church universal that it will abide and will gather and grow and be built from generation to generation. The locale may change. The denominational title may change. It is not a promise to a local church or to a a denomination. They come and they go. Read the book of Revelation. End of argument. But the church will abide forever. Do not put your hope and your confidence in the local, in the denomination. You will be disappointed every time. But our hope is in the church that will last and endure And it will not vanish. Crowns and thrones may perish. Kingdoms rise and wane. But the church of Jesus constant will remain. The true church never dies. The church of men passes away. It will die. In Malawi, Africa, they used to have what was called the Charlie Church. It was named after their founder, Charlie, Charles. Charlie woke up before he died, three years before he died, and he said, my church has been a disaster. It's all been about me. The followers all were attached to me, Charlie. Hence the Charlie Church. And he said, it's over, I'm dying And he said, It's time to deal with this. You do not confess Charlie, you confess Jesus. The church is eternal. Charlie will come and go, but the church of Jesus constant will remain. What is the great emblem that speaks to that of us? It will be like the burning bush. The bush may burn. It may face tragedy. It may face extinction on the surface. It may be assailed. It may be persecuted. But the church will not be consumed. It will be like that bush. It may burn. But it will not be consumed. We need this word in the West today. In the gates of hell, Hades, should not prevail against it. Are you clear on the church? Yes, there's a visible church. That's another discussion. But are you clear on this essential, cardinal, overriding statement? Do you know who Christ is? Do you know what the church is? And thirdly, what of these keys, very quickly, then verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What do you say about these keys? Friends, keep it very general at first when you address this text. Think of keys. I used to carry 20 keys around in my pocket every day at Dumasoni when I was acting principal. And I had all 20 memorized over the years. Keys for this, keys for that, keys everywhere. What is the key for? Just think of it. It's to open, to close, to open and to reveal what's inside. You take the key, you look inside and say, hey, I didn't know what was in there. Look at the treasures in there. So the the key opens and reveals the treasures and the blessings. Now, there's an illusion here that's very difficult for us to get on two fronts. If you were a scribe in the Old Testament tradition, you'd be trained in the law. So the scribes and the Pharisees, you'd be trained. You'd go to classes. You'd go to school. The rabbis would teach you. And there would come the day of your graduation exercises, and you would graduate. And instead of getting a nice little piece of paper, they handed you a key. And what, why did they hand you a key? One day I closed a church many years ago and they gave me a key. They said you can have the key that built it was here at the church's building in 1882. So I kept the key. I thought, great, I've got a key that's 140 years old. They gave me a key to close the church. Why did the scribes, be, were they given a key the day that they had finished their rabbinical training? Because the key was the symbol. You now have understanding. You can unlock the Torah. You can unlock the law. You can unlock the Talmud. You can make it understandable to people. They will understand the riches of the Holy Scriptures. The key opens to the room of the Word of God. But there's a problem. You remember the problem in uh, Luke chapter 11? And if you turn there, you'll see Jesus talks about this in Luke 11. And he talks about a certain group of scribes. They were not civil lawyers. They were lawyers of the Bible. They were at the highest level of the scribes. Go back and read chapter 11 of Luke. And you'll see it there. At uh, verse 46, one of the lawyers, not a civil lawyer, don't go there for property disputes or marital relations and all that. You went to this lawyer... Because he was the highest rung of the hierarchy of all the scribes. And you'd go to that lawyer and say, Now I've got this question in the Talmud. I've got this question in the law. I want you to open the key. Let me see it and understand it. And he would him and haw, and he would be more confused at the end of the meeting than you were at the beginning of the meeting. And you say, Well, I've been to places like that in my life, and I've paid big money for it. And Jesus is saying, The scribes had the key. But they confused the people. They didn't open the kingdom. They didn't open the word. Look down at verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, you scribes of the law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves And you hindered those who were entering. Peter. You have confessed right. Jesus is the Messiah. I am the Lord. He has confessed it right. I give you the key. Now don't confuse the people. Teach them this message. Open and reveal to them Jesus the person and his work. Do not add the Talmud and tradition. Teach the simplicity, the clarity of the word of God in Jesus Christ. You have understood Peter. You have confessed right. Now go and open that. Unlock the doors of the rooms. Let people see Jesus. And I could turn you again to Acts 2 verse 39 and Acts 10. And what did Peter do? He opened the door to the diaspora Jews. He opened the door to the Gentiles so that they could see Jesus. The key must reveal Christ. Not tradition. Not confusion. It must be straight. Now there's a challenge here, and the challenge is very simple. That is this. The challenge to the Christian community as it goes forth, gathers disciples and calls and trains, will be to make sure that it is turning the key to saving faith in Jesus. It will be challenged to change the doctrine to false teachers. It will be challenged by the lives who have lived a false gospel. It will be challenged by it seeing temporary declensions and backslidings. There will be challenges all along the way. And there will be great backslidings. You see, this verse is paralleled with two other verses in Scripture. In Matthew 18, verses 15 and 20, it is paralleled. And in John chapter uh, 20, at verse 20, 22, it is paralleled. Where Jesus there, in anticipation of the Pentecost in John 20, he says, I breathe on you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you forth, and you are going to preach the forgiveness of sins. You're going to turn the key. But beware, some will come after you who will turn a different key and they will lock people back into false teaching and they will lock people into false living and they will take this church backward into sin. That's the general principle of the text. There's a lot more to it than that. But generally speaking, that is how you should look at it. And the binding here, when you bind it on earth, you think of Acts 15. They bound it on earth. that The Gentiles were to be brought in. There was an inspired mandate. And here is what we need to be careful of. It met as an assembly and it was inspired and recorded in the scripture. But assemblies ever after can meet and bind, but they can bind always, not consistently with the word of God. There is a difference always to note. It is a very, very carefully applied text of scripture. Now, brothers and sisters, humans need the good news. They need to hear the good news of the turning of the key. That there is forgiveness for you. And there is new life for you. And there is the call to come, to believe, and to repent the exercise of the keys generally first is this. It is the proclamation of the glorious gospel, the evangelic work of the church, and we are bound authoritatively to receive all men and women into this community. May you have settled convictions, be not confused. May you confess publicly, I believe in Jesus Christ, the anointed the Son of God. I believe in this holy, universal church that has con- common faith across all ages and places, not confined only to visible shells and buildings, a church that has a promise of he who send it to glory, who is the head of the church, and he has given his promise. To that church. And. I know. That these keys. Open the truth of salvation. And some will have their souls opened. As the message is given. And some. Will shut the door again. And they will walk away. And they will walk away from eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ may God bless and strengthen us as we partake of his word